Hello, my name is Sophia Crone, and I am a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I'm here with Dr. Sarah E. Hill, an evolutionary psychologist, to talk about her event tonight. It's time to talk about women's brains and the birth control pill. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Hill. Yes. To start, I was wondering a bit more about your book. So your book, Your Brain on Birth Control, The Surprising Science of Women, Hormones, and the Law of Unintended Consequences. You discuss how you were first exposed to the topic. And I was wondering what triggered you to be passionate enough to write a whole book about it, right? Right. So the thing that, uh, that made me really want to dive into this was just uh, this is information that most women don't have. And so the birth control pill is a prescription that most women will fill at some point in their lives. Um, the CDC recently estimated that about 85% of women in the U.S. will go on hormonal birth control at some point in their lives. And yet, you know, women will experience a lot of these psychological side effects and they don't really have any information about what they are or why they're having them. And... I put this, I, I wanted to write this book to be able to provide sort of a, a language for women to be able to use to explain their experiences and also just to let them be aware of the range of effects that are potentially possible from hormonal contraception. Yeah, and those are some amazing statistics. Yeah. And I think despite those numbers, still so many people are unaware of the connections that the birth control pill can have to our brain. Yeah. So when you're speaking to someone who doesn't know a lot about the subject or isn't on birth control, how do you broach the subject? Or do you have like a surprising fact that you usually open with? Oh gosh, you know, I don't know. I think that the thing that, uh, that it's, it's not really a surprising fact, but I think that it surprises people. It's just... The idea that our brains, you know, use hormones to help create the experience of being the person that we are and that what our hormones are doing, um, especially our sex hormones, can have a really big impact on the way that we think and feel and experience the world. And I think that people forget that. You know, I think that we tend to think about our hormones as affecting our menstrual cycles and, you know, all these different things from the you know neck down, like puberty and yeah. pregnancy but we don't really think about the fact that um, our, our hormones are, are part of who we are. And so when you make changes um, in a person's hormones, it's going to have um, a, ra a wide range of impacts on a person, including um, psychological changes. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's important to draw those simple lines, even if they seem simple, simple to us, it might not be something someone's thinking about every day. Well, right. I mean, even for me, you know, I've spent most of my career studying women in psychology and um, even studying the effects of sex hormones on motivational states and that sort of thing in women. And I still, I never put two and two together about, you know, oh, hormones affect women's psychology and hormones affect women's motivational states. And then I was on the birth control pill, you know, all the time I was studying this stuff. And I never even thought twice about the fact that the way that I'm experiencing the world might be different because I'm on the pill compared to what it would be if I were not. And, um, and so I, I think we've all got a little bit of a blind spot about that, including people like me who, you know, spend their career thinking about uh, psychology. I think why so women have that uh, blind spot is because the pill is the default option for a lot of doctors and their recommendations when women's have, women have health concerns or anything really regarding menstruation or even acne concerns like that. Right. Yeah. Do you have any advice for women who want to advocate for themselves and their options in those settings, but because it's so often the default, don't know how to even start that conversation? 
Right. I think that um, it's important for women to find a physician who's willing to listen to their concerns with hormonal birth control. I think that uh, there is growing awareness by many doctors of the fact that women have been largely understudied in you know most of medical research for years now. And that I think doctors are starting to actually finally wrap their arms around the idea that women will experience side effects with drugs that um, aren't anticipated and aren't in their research literature that they're accustomed to reading. And so I do think that there is an increasing um, number of doctors who are open-minded to actually listening to things that aren't, you know, side effects that they're familiar with. And I would just make sure, I would tell women to just make sure that they have one of these doctors, like find somebody who's willing to answer their questions and and to play an active role in um, in helping to decide what's going to be best for them. And I think that educating yourself um, as a woman about the different types of progestins, for example, in hormonal birth control and and knowing what the range of side effects are, that can make you um, like a partner with your physician and helping to choose something that's going to work for you. Because if you try one thing and you don't like the way it makes you feel, then you can go back and say, ah, I didn't like this. This had a second generation progestin in it. Can we try something with a different generation of progestin in it? Um, and then work alongside your doctors. Because n- not every doctor even knows about the different generations of progestins and birth control. And um, so... As, as women, I, I think that um, having that sort of background, educating yourself in those types of things um, can allow you to really partner with your doctor, um, if, as long as you've got a good one, to help find something that's going to work for you. That's great. Going back to your book for a second, I was wondering what the greatest challenge um, you had while writing that book was. The greatest challenge while writing the book, oh gosh, the greatest challenge was writing the book. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of uh, trying to synthesize a whole lot of information mm-hmm. and make it um, understandable to people is a, is a tricky thing to do. And especially when you're talking about things like when you're getting into neuroscience, it can get really boring um, and it can get really hard to explain. And so finding ways to um, explain things in ways that are going to be, while at the same time, scientifically accurate, but then also relatively easy to understand and not getting into the weeds, um, I think was probably the biggest challenge. It was also the thing about it that was most fun because um, there's something really rewarding about finding a way to explain something really complicated in a way that is um, understandable to most people. I know that was one of the things that made me most excited to invite as a speaker was the the tone you were able to strike in the book and how engaging it was. And, you know, it's at times a little bit of a frustrating thing to learn, especially for some of the chapters. And you were always able to end it on a hopeful note, which I think really engaged readers. My next question is a bit biased. As an anthropology student, I was really excited to see that you had a background in anthropology. And I was wondering how that influenced your work today. Oh gosh, yeah. So I um, I majored in anthropology as an undergraduate because I have always been really interested in people, and things that made me so interested about people was I loved and I was so curious about how cross culturally we can be very different from one another, but at the same time there's this like really just like core humanity that all people share in common. And I wanted to try to understand what some of the, you know, sort of the interplay between that is. Like, how is it that we're so different and, and all the same at the same time? And, and what can we learn about our similarity and our humanness um, from our differences? And, you know, that background, just like this idea of trying to understand 
the nature of human nature. I mean, a lot of ways, this book is about what happens when we when we alter that. You know, it's like it's like we have this human nature that we've inherited from our female ancestors over millions of years. Um, and and part of that is our the wisdom of our hormones and the you know the way that our psychological experiences change and our behaviors change over the course of the cycle depending on whether uh, sex can lead to conception or not or whether we're at a point in our cycle when um, pregnancy is possible and so you know it's it's like looking at that and then contrasting how people change then when you supplant this naturally inherited hormonal wisdom. Um, with this synthetic hormonal message that women get every day, I mean, it's it's sort of looking at the the interplay between like here's human nature, and then here's um, how that changes when you add this this hormonal medication on top of it. You know, I, everything that I do is is rooted ultimately in understanding the evolutionary foundations of uh, human behavior. And whenever you're talking about some sort of a environmental intervention. Um, it's always about sort of setting up the contrast between, you know, sort of our nature and then what does that look like once we've made this, um, we've made this intervention. That's amazing. At lunch today, we spoke a little bit more about your research that you're currently pursuing. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about your research on immune competence and risky decision making. We're doing different, we're doing a variety of different things with the, uh, the immune system at the moment. And so one of those things is we're looking at at how women who are on hormonal birth control, how their inflammatory response to stress differs from women who are are naturally cycling. Um, And we're really curious about this because there's been research now for um, decades that shows that women who are on the pill have a blunted cortisol response to stress. And cortisol, in addition to being the stress hormone, um, it also plays a really important role in terms of regulating inflammatory activity in the body. And so we predicted that we should expect to see, given the dysregulation in cortisol that we get in pill takers, that they also have um, different uh, inflammatory responses to stress, just simply because they're not having that type of regulation in the way that we see in the non-pill takers. Um, And so we have done some studies where we have been having naturally cycling women and women who are on the pill, we stress them out in the research lab, and then we take their blood and measure um, measure their inflammatory factors. And what we're finding is that there are some important differences between pill takers and non-pill takers. And so that sort of is a, a tie-in between our work and inflammation and then um, hormonal birth control. But on the other side, you know, you mentioned risky decision-making. We have some research that also looks at inflammatory activity in the body and its relationship with making short-term focused decisions. And so the idea here is that when you have inflammatory activity going on in the body, this is sending a signal that there's something amiss. So generally we have inflammation if we are starting to get sick. Um, inflammation will start to increase because our immune system is is upregulating its responses and that causes the release of these inflammatory factors. Um, and so inflammation it tells you 
like, okay, you're fighting something off right now. And that's context in the body in which the need for resources, like energetic resources and other types of resources is higher than it is at other times. Because when your immune system is active, it actually increases your metabolic load. Uh, And it also another thing that immunological activity in the body tells you is that the future is less certain than it is in the absence of an immunological event, just simply because if you're having an immunological event, it means that something's going on. And so we predicted that this internal physiological state um, should increase uh, people's desire for immediate versus delayed rewards, just simply because it's like your resource need is higher and your future is less certain in that type of biological context relative to what it is in the absence of an inflammatory event. And so we found now in several, several studies that you get, when you get inflama- like elevated inflammation and not elevated to the level of what we see when people are acutely ill, like if people have the flu or, or you know, a bad cold or something, their inflammatory activity will be much higher than what it is that we measure. But just their basal inflammatory activity, if you have elevated uh, levels, then we find that that's associated with more impulsivity, a greater tendency to favor immediate versus delayed rewards, and a reduced ability to exercise self-control and um, delay gratification. That's so cool. I would like to thank Dr. Hill for joining us today and sharing so many insightful answers to our questions. I encourage our listeners to go to theclarkform.org to see the recorded live stream of Dr. Hill's event. Thank you so much.